this world of these gaps is really important. Uh, how, how you misunderstand me is such a blessing. Otherwise, it would be a, a mechanism, right? I think that, especially as we are moving into more difficult times, that generosity is so needed. I mean, I, I know we're all in it now. I like that question of how would we raise our children differently if we knew they weren't leaving home because I think it kind of like smacks it in your face of like, listen, we are absolutely training each other not to need each other. Welcome to the Coconut Thinking Podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Freud, and we are in collaboration with Intrepid Ed News. Today's guest is Nora Bateson. I won't provide any biographical information on Nora. I will, however, leave her the space of explaining who she is and how she fits into her own puzzle. I want to say this is one of the most marking conversations I've ever had. Every conversation leaves a mark on us, but some really make a mark that is so deep. And I'm still thinking about it several days afterwards, and I will for a long, long time. The only word that I can think of with this conversation is the word divine. I think of the Bhagavad Gita about how divinity is love, caring, connections, all of those things that are more than the words that we used to describe them. And I'm not saying that Nora is divine. I am pretty certain she wouldn't want that label. However, what it opened up for me was very special. And as I listened to the raw recordings of this conversation, I could hear my voice change. I could hear my voice change because of what was in front of me. The conversations, the ideas, the connections, the raw power of what Nora evokes. I'll leave space for the conversation with Nora. Check us out, www.coconut-thinking.design. And of course, Intrepid Ed on www.intrepidednews.com. And here I leave space for my conversation with Nora Bateson. Hi, Nora. Really excited to have you on the podcast. Uh, looking forward to talking to you and, and thinking about so many different things. Um, and I'll start with the question that we ask all our guests, which is, who are you and what story do you want to tell? Hi, it's great to be here. Um, and um, thank you for waiting for me to come back from my uh, adventure with whatever this recent flu or cold is that, that you can still hear it a little bit in my voice but anyway I'm here um I am who am I and what story do I want to tell uh I I think that for me one of the most important uh aspects of who I am has to do with the um, the reach that I am making between generations. And in that sense, I feel uh, it's a funny sort of sense of identity because in a way it's um, it definitely places me. You know, there's quite a bit of talk about place, um, but we don't really talk about place in relationship that much. And um, 
my father and my grandfather and my sister uh, have all been participating in a form of inquiry that I would say is um, is pulled by a kind of affection for life. And uh, that starts it, with my grandfather with his uh, love of science and art. Um, he is the person that coined the term genetics. Um, and his studies of the way that organisms change um, were located in the way that organisms change in relationship to other organisms. So this was pretty radical for the science of that time. Actually, it's kind of radical for the science of today um, because what was mostly a part of that inquiry what was was the, the the question of how does an organism change from generation to generation and what he was sort of noticing is that 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 in or organisms are shifting in relationship to each other in the environment so if you look at the intergenerational change you going to miss contextual change. So this is kind of an interesting uh, metaphor for the question of who are you, um, particularly in this intergenerational flow and, and uh, holding of hands across generations of actually doing this kind of work. Um, my father came in and he he couldn't really refer to his father's work that much. He did a little, but um, he, my grandfather had been pretty shamed by the world of science and particularly genetics for as being the guy that got it wrong. And he he had suggested that organisms were communicating these relational changes in some sort of vibrations and that that was actually happening inside the organisms as well. Now, of course, in fact, 125, 140 years later, it's starting to emerge that that he wasn't wrong, but he was a rebel. And he was willing to risk everything, to walk away from the academy. To He got offered knighthood. He said no. He left Cambridge when they offered him a chair in genetics because they wanted to do chromosome theory, which is linear. And he wanted to study environmental change, which is nonlinear. Um, he was unwilling to violate his uh, affection for life. And he was uh, very outspoken about the violation that he saw others making. Um, in that time, that was around 
uh, the turn of the century when eugenics was really the at the forefront of science around the world. And he he said it was a vulgarity and a violence to nature that we should treasure the exceptions and the mutations and the changes and the possibilities of the ways that that organisms were changing in relationship to each other and so on. Um, and my father then had uh, some similarities. He was there for help to start the Macy conferences and was there for the beginning of cybernetics and systems theory, complexity theory. Uh, and, and he also refused to fit himself into, to mold himself into um, a proper tenure candidate for any university. Refused tenure countless times from countless universities because he didn't want to get stuck in any one department because his work was spanning many of them. And he didn't want anyone to own him in that way. So my father had similar um, characteristics in that he was willing to risk position in the existing systems and uh, notoriety, credibility, financial security, job security, um, and even his own credibility and respectability in favor of um, his attention uh, and, and his work around the delicate interdependencies of life, those processes that we really don't have language for that have to do with relational processes um, that, 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 that produce vitality itself, right? Vitality isn't in one organism. It's in lots of organisms being in relationship to each other and the way that that, that changes. Um, so I, I'm holding this ancestry and at the same time I have children and I'm looking at the world that we are living in and the rapid changes of this era. And I think for me, um, I, I, I actually wonder how much things have changed. So the context is different. All right, the way my grandfather spoke in his day about this interdependency was in this sort of beautiful but impenetrable um, biological poetic speech of the turn of the century. Um, my father's also addressed the context of his era, and he was... Um, he was in a lot of different fields, um, starting in the 50s in psychology, in, in anthropology, in information science, and so on. Um, and later on in California, in the kind of California um, counterculture. Asking the same questions, how do we make changes to the way that we live? And I am too bringing these same questions in to a very different kind of world um, in a different kind of way. So 
and my voice is um, is particular to the the context of this era. Um, one thing that I think has been important for me is to bring poetry and art right up front into the actual formation of language and communication itself. So so often I I feel like I get underestimated uh, because people don't really think that I am carrying the serious uh, depth of rigor that I am carrying. Or uh, on the flip side, that it's too academic and there's too much rigor and I should just be an artist, one or the other. Um, I also get caught in the trap of I am, there's no way for me to not be my father's daughter. And there's actually no way for me to be my father. So I am very disappointing in that I, I can't get out of either of those. Um, I have really just begun to discover the, the traditions um, of intergenerational artisanship as being something that I, I am resonating with. Um, I, I, I hadn't understood before how important that was. And, you know, when you, when you meet uh, a family of, I don't know, jewelers, and they've been making jewelry for, you know, 500 years or, or one craft or another that they've people have been making for many generations. Uh, and this this intergenerational work is long. and it's uh, it's immune to the trends of what's fashionable. Things come and things go. And uh, I find that I am leaning more and more into this this artisan metaphor because it actually brings into view the way in which those crafts are, are transmitted is not just in the moment of training somebody how to use the tools. The actual thinking that is required, the, the attention, the particular care, and the, um, the forms of perception needed to do the craft are actually saturated entirely into life. So, uh, you know, you can celebrate the craftsmanship of somebody and not at all recognize that the way of being behind that craftsmanship has permeated the way they have breakfast or the way they're in relationship or the way that they are seeing life itself. 
Um, we live in a time in which it isn't actually popular to carry those intergenerational stories. And we're supposed to individuate and to, you know, break away from the family and make your mark, make it different than, you know, do something beyond what your family did, et cetera. And, and I'm just beginning to find not only peace, but real inspiration in the long soak of this. What's wonderful is that um, my children are actually starting to um, be able to do that also. So my daughter's beginning to come and work with, with me. Um, and uh, my son as well. I can't tell you who I am in that sense because I feel like I'm holding one set of ancestors in one hand and future generations in the other. And I'm merely a conduit between them. Um, so in a, in, a, in, a, in one sense, this gives my story and my identity all sorts of definition. And, and and many tones and flavors and possibilities. And in another sense, it's a it's it's a it's a quite selfless place uh, because it isn't really about me. And what a relief that is. It allows me to actually, uh, engage with a, a whole different sort of rigor and, and inspiration. It allows me to, to to play with voice, with expression, with with how to communicate um, this pursuit of perception, communication, relationship in this moment, in my world, through my generation, in, in this time. My daughter's coming along and she's gonna have another way of exploring communication and relationship and perception. Um, and, and it will be informed by some of what I have done and what her ancestors have done. So this is sort of the story and and the identity at the same time. And it's very much actually in keeping with the metaphor of what William was doing to begin with, which is this study of how organisms change and at the same time, how that that is taking place environmentally and contextually. So it is kind of all of one answer, actually, if that, if that works for you. It, it works beautifully for many reasons. As, as I mentioned before we hit record, the question is is open on purpose because how how someone answers that says so much and, and, and adds to that story. So the, the, the usual question we follow up with immediately is how do you define learning? And, and we'll get to that. I, I don't want to lose this opportunity of bringing in um, just this idea 
of starting from the middle, this, uh, this post-humanist idea of starting from the middle, that there is no beginning other than the Big Bang, and that we are, we are where we are with the connections that we have multi-directionally because also you have a sister. So from a generational point of view, if we look at it from like a tree, and it's not like a rhizome, but a tree, it, it extends in different directions. But we start from the middle because we are in the middle somewhere and everything's in the middle because there's no beginning and no end. I'm also thinking about Donna Haraway and how she brings in so much art into what she does, uh, in, in, into her, her, uh, um, her work as well and, and trying to bring in that effective moving away from just the pure cognitive. And I'm also thinking about these connections that we have, these assemblages of how it is all just one in the moment, but at the same time, time stretches. Um, so it, from, from that point of view, I, I, I will kind of bring these up and see if there's any of those threads that you want to pull on. Um, let's see. There's these threads. So, you know, we can pull on whichever ones we want to pull. We're going to end up everywhere. So it, it's fine with me to, to, to pull on them from all directions. Um, and of course, Donna Haraway um, is at Santa Cruz in the history of consciousness department where my father taught. So she was the student of his work and she uses a lot of his work in her writings. Um, and uh, but I, you know, also, I think we have to be careful because there's a way in which you can get so stylized in this post-human discourse that it actually becomes meaningless again. And um, so easy as you go. Uh, I mean, for me, it's about integrity, ultimately. And uh, I, I remember a moment with my own writing feeling that that the style of writing that I had been enjoying was starting to actually own me. And that it wasn't that I was waiting for some that things something was bubbling up through me anymore. It was that there was already an expectation out here that the writing was going to fill. And I stopped writing for a year or so at that point until I could get balanced again and 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 be be pulled into what I was working on instead of uh, have it kind of reflected back at me and answering to it which is something that can happen really easy. You know, it's become very trendy to talk about biology in poetic terminology. And and I honestly, I, you know, I feel like in on the one hand, that's beautiful. And on the other hand, it putting, you know, purple language on things doesn't make it deep and so I, I I feel a little bit of you know sort of wariness around this becoming a trend which is so strange because I actually you know I've spent decades down in that spot fighting for that voice and 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 being overlooked and being underestimated and and now it's become popular. And now I'm like, oh, no. 
how do we keep this from from just getting washed away in another trend and now I'll then I'll bring in this this question about learning, but 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 more than that, this question of uh, adaptability, this question of movement, this question of um, how how we respond to the context where we are. What is it, it's such an important question, particularly for the educators who are out there who are always talking about learning and yet you never talk about learning. So um, I'll just go with it from a simple way, even though even though it's 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 oversimplifying uh, the matters how do you define learning um i have written quite a bit about learning and um i am fascinated with the way in which i perceive um transcontextual mutual learning to be a a criteria of life itself so I I made up this word, um, and the word is symathesy. And the sim part of this word is together. And mathesy means learning. And so a symathesy is a learning together. It's a it's a it's an entity that is created in multiple contextual learning processes that are in mutual learning, right? Okay. So I'm a somathesy, you're a somathesy. The idea being that whenever there is communication and you add a little time, any amount of time, that relational process is one of mutual learning. Now, when I say, like right now, here we are talking, and what as we're talking, we're figuring out what are the limits of where we understand each other and where can we go and where are the ways that we resonate? What can we discover together? What are we, what are we finding out about ourselves in this relationship? What are we finding out about each other? What are we learning about life? Um, and, and that means that we are changing. So learning for me is synonymous with change. Uh, learning for me is synonymous with evolution. But I also think that we have to be very careful around the idea that learning is always good. Uh, I, the way I see somathesy is that we, we talk about the crooked tree and that the crooked tree is learning to be crooked. It's It's reaching for the light and it's reaching down in its roots and and it's it, the way that it is becoming and forming in forming is a, is is shaped by the context and the mutual learning that it's in so you can learn to lie you can learn to hold back your affection you can learn to be violent uh learning is not only this you know sort of accumulated knowledge toward a higher refined being um i think on the contrary if we look out at the world that we live in right now one of the biggest challenges is the fact that we have all learned to be in a world that is actually um out of sync with uh with a world of possibilities that we don't know yet 
We can't even perceive them because our cognitive processes have been wound around and entrained to perceive, to communicate about, and to confirm between each other positioning and placement in these existing systems. We're learning, we are crooked trees and we are learning to be in this forest. And as we are doing this, we're holding each other in it. So this mutual learning, um, and mutual is another interesting word because you could think that I mean that we're learning the same thing. But even in this conversation right now, you and I are not learning this. What I'm learning is different than what you're learning, but we're learning it together. So mutual learning is not something that is, is a sameness of learning. And that, that uh, particularity of the way in which the, the, the cauldron of your experiences, your heartbreaks, your pains, your aches, your life, your history, your language, all the ways that you are coming to this are, are able to receive the things that I say in very, in very unique ways, right? I might think that I'm transmitting what is coming from my cauldron of experiences, but of course I'm not. And um, so in that sense, we are, we are both blessed and doomed by a kind of a gap. And that gap is, I think, a very important aspect of vitality itself. How we keep things moving along, how we keep from being a machine. Um, it's easy to perceive a forest or a, a meadow or an ecology as a grouping of organisms that each have their purpose and that are linked together with a kind of interdependency that has thresholds and so on and so forth. And before you know it, you're talking about this ecology with a mechanistic metaphor. It's a little squishier. But once you start to see these gaps, you realize, oh, this is this is where the learning gets in. This is where the new comes in. This is where the looseness happens. This is where the chaos sneaks in. And, and that's um, absolutely essential. So learning for me is, um, learning is a description of our pain. Learning is also a description of the way we heal. Learning is a description of the tautologies and the incredible paradoxes that we are living within, all of us. Um, and learning is also how one might describe the way in which those paradoxes and tautologies shift. If you ask yourself the question, how does an organism know how to evolve? I mean, that's an interesting question. 
because an organism knows how to do what it knows how to do and it does what it does because that's what it does and it eats what it eats because that's what it eats and it mates the way it mates and it re reproduces the way it reproduces and it's in these various interdependencies because that's how it is except no it's changing the whole group of relationships is changing so how does an organism know how to do the thing it's never done before how does it know how to live in a way that it's never lived before how does it know how to grow a new limb um where does that learning happen uh, so for me i think this this world of these gaps is really important uh how how you misunderstand me is such a blessing. Otherwise, it would be a, a mechanism, right? And, and the gaps move and shift and change sizes and open up and close up at the same time. Yeah. So we have to find the opportunities in those gaps in so many ways, which is which is that paradox. I think a lot of times we we don't know what's there and we might not need to know. Because I think that there's another process taking place there um, in kind of unseen ways. That the way you fill those gaps and the way you, you tissue things together and the way I tissue things together is just leading us into different directions. Um, I had a, a friend recently who... Um, who was saying something to somebody and that person that he was saying something to completely took the gaps and filled them with like the wrong information. And, and I understood where, where both of them were coming from. But I mean, when I'm communicating with you right now, there's no way I can say everything, right? I can't make an exhaustive spreadsheet of communication. I have to leave gaps. And so something in our communication is, is allowing for um, this, I hope, friendly, filling of the gaps. But, you know, I mean, we've all had the experience where you write an email and the response to that email comes back, woohoo, wow, that wasn't what I was talking about at all. And now this person's upset with me or they have really misunderstood me and they've filled my gaps with exactly not what I was talking about. And you write back and you say, oh, I'm so sorry. I guess I should have been more clear. Right? We have this colloquialism. I suppose I should have been more clear. And uh, that's that's a funny thing to say because, in fact, what you're trying to say is, I suppose I should have made different gaps. <laughs> I suppose the gaps I left were the wrong ones for this relationship. I have made a gapping mistake here. And, and, it was 
incredible to see, you know, different cultures leave different kinds of gaps. But different people, leave, you know, in the same household make different kinds of, of gappings in their communication. Um, I guess the main thing is that those spaces are the spaces that get filled with life and make things churn. Even when we bump up against each other and we make mistakes and we misunderstand each other, we're learning. We're exploring and we're not trying to make more refined, perfect communication. What we're trying to do is actually figure out what is the music of the way you and I make gaps together. And hopefully, I mean, I know for my own part, I prefer to be in relationships in which that communication is um, is warm, is not divisive. You know, a gap is not a separation. It's a space we fill, right? It's it's the it's the it's the silence between the notes that allows there to be notes. It's, it's, you know, you can't have a rhythm without a gap. And that doesn't mean that it's something that's separating us. But very often, we read into these gaps as total uh, separations, walls. And... Going back to the learning, it's not always good or bad. Now, of course, I get a simplification because it's not about these value judgments. However, we do take these things many ways as value judgments. And the, 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 what came into my mind is whether or not the experiences that in which we are, where, if at all, do we layer morality in here? How does morality connect with learning? How does morality that comes from inside, outside this, this, this thing that we construct from both our experiences, what we're told, what we're taught, what we figure out for ourselves, where does that fall into learning in order to minimize the bad learning? Maybe it's, it's, it's part of a self-awareness. How, how does that fall in? Where does it take us morality? Mm. I mean, I think you can get in a lot of sticky water there. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, I'm going to do a little reframe on that one. And, and I, what I have been discovering with the work that I do with warm data, now the warm data work, uh, well, there's two basic processes, the warm data lab and the people need people online process. Both of them um, are, uh, ways in which groupings of people engage in conversation uh, in such a way that they are able to, in fairly short period of time, begin to perceive a multi-contextual world that they are uh, intimately a part of together. Um, what I have seen there is that it has everything to do with this multi-contextual perception. That when 
people are in conversation and there is this transcontextual are we talking about the economy? Are we talking about family? Are we talking about culture? Are we talking about history? Are we talking about education? Are we talking about health? Are we talking about science, media, tech, right? And and when all of these contexts are swirling around our question together, what begins to happen is that there is a sort of um, shift in perception that allows for a different kind of integrity to come through, a different kind of generosity to come through. If you start to perceive more how, how a single action or story of your life is actually connected to all these different contexts at the same time, uh, it becomes much harder to generate a objectification okay so if i say say i'm telling a story or someone's telling a story about a child that's having a really hard time at school um we might start with that story of being really angry at that little child why don't you try harder why are you skipping class why can't you get up in the morning and just get out the door and get to school why are you not paying attention in class and doing your homework? And then we might reach out to the parents and think, okay, you need to actually apply some discipline to your child. Your parenting is lacking. You are failing in this. And then we might begin to look a little further and start to look at um, some health issues that are taking place in the household. We might begin to see that there are food issues. We might begin to see that there are economic issues behind the food issues, behind the health issues, behind the behavior issues, behind the, right? And that those economic struggles are actually held in larger political issues and legal struggles. And that those political and legal struggles are actually held in cultural expectations and, and cultural binaries, polarities that are taking place in other ways. And those might be then perceivable in terms of, of media or technology in the way. So, so pretty soon what you're doing is you're doing a sort of a simultaneous zoom in on the particularities of one little person trying to go to school in the morning but feeling all kinds of physical resistance, emotional resistance, and 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 not not jumping out of bed and tying their shoes and going off to school, but staying on the doormat crying to the the feeling of failure and of the parents and the whole emotional process there, or the frustration of the teacher who's working way too hard and doesn't have time to deal with this. To the school counselor who can only come in with a particular kind of approach, which is gonna look like a diagnostic. Right? To the grandparents who are gonna come in with a whole different cultural idea of what it means to go to school and why. To, right, to siblings, to all sorts of 
other relationships that are involved. It's the whole community involved with that little child sitting in that seat. And that moment of being able to really perceive that zoom in and the zoom out at the same time generates a whole different approach to responding to that child. Um, and the parents, and the teacher, and the politician, and the technology, and the, the, the whole approach to responding to any of it is shifted because there is a tenderness there. It comes to life in this. The complexity becomes real. It becomes intimate and personal. Uh, and so when you ask morality, I, I, I wanted to go around that because mm -hmm. it's really easy for that to become a prescriptive for mm -hmm, a particular mm -hmm. type of behavior that has a particular type of judgment attached to the possibilities from the outside perceiving in. And I think this is something different, but maybe achieves what you what you mean by this. I'm filling your mm -hmm. gap here, by yeah, the that's way. Right. Um, <laughs> um, uh, around how how does it become possible to bring nourishment to each other mm -hmm. uh, which i think is something to do with doing the right thing mm. right i think that's what where where the morality comes in of like mm -hmm. how do i do the right thing how do i be a good person yeah. how do i be a good person I want to be a good person. How do I do that? Every time I move, every cup of coffee I have is attached to, you know, God knows what exploitation, mm -hmm. my clothing, my, right. My, my daughter actually phoned me and she said, how do I be a good person, mom? When everything I touch leads me back, touches me, connects me, links me directly into the exploitation and destruction of the living world and human beings and right how do i be a good person on some level that is the question how do we do how do we be a good person and and i thank you for that because you know as i was using the words morality i realized gosh that's that's and, and, and you shifted it and and that's such a heavy word that that is linked with all these things about religion and and values and imposition and again exploitation and again domination it's a and that's really just the simplicity of the question i did want to pose how are you can you be a good person and and again now i want to bring in the word ethics and those the words don't need to be that complicated what's the right thing to do mm -hmm. yeah because again it's that crooked tree mm -hmm. it's the crooked tree and i think you know for for me i think the generosity that is there in the possibility of me saying, listen, I know you're a crooked tree. Whoever you tell me you are, I know you're more than that. In a thousand different ways that you may not know yourself. I don't need to know what all of those ways are, but I know that they're there because you are a complex living being. And I give you that possibility so it's and that I, generosity then it, yeah 
And I think that especially as we are moving into more difficult times, that generosity is so needed. I mean, I, I know we're all in it now. You must have moments with your family and your friends and the people that are close to you right now that are getting a little screwy and people are cutting people off or they're making judgments about people or they're dividing based on one idea or another or they're, they're responding in ways that are completely incoherent to you and they don't understand why it's incoherent to you. And there's this sort of sense that um, we were in a tapestry and now suddenly we're just dangling threads. And how do we reweave ourselves into a different kind of fabric together? Especially when we're angry and hurt and holding the, the traumas of many generations and, and the, the inadequacy of the industrial metaphor that has been a completely addictive contaminant um, that, that, that is asking you to optimize, be a better person. Here's, here's the four steps for you to be a better person. Here's a $10,000 workshop you can do to get to the next level of your bettering, right? This is totally industrial behavior. This is the idea that you are part of a factory and you can be more effective, more efficient, more, more, more. You can do more. You can, you as an individual are an individual. Are you? Where's the edge of you? Right? When you asked me today, who are you? I was immediately like, well, where's the edge of me? Am I my ancestors? Am I my children? Am I me? Am I, where am I in this? Who are you? Are you your ancestors? Are you your children? Are you your, who are you? Where's the edge of you? Is it your ideas? your skin, your family. Even the physical space that, that I occupy and the touching of the chair and the desk and all, all these things as well. Right. Are you? When I ask, are you a good person, that extends into your clothing, your breakfast, your how you, you know, got to the office today or wherever you are, the technology that you're using, the cobalt in the technology you're using that was mined by children. I mean, like, let's just be real here. You know, um, I, I don't think there's really any time or reason to justify any of this anymore. How do we know when to stop collecting and stop making these connections and just stop and just accept the fact that we can't figure it all out. I know Bruno Latour says a good thesis is a thesis that's done. And I, that kind of makes me laugh in many ways because, you know, we're constrained by certain things that we can't control. And sometimes just have to say, yep, enough's enough. That's it. I mean, that's, it's a both question because on the one hand, let the rigor prevail, never stop the inquiry. And on the other hand, know with humility that the inquiry is not for you to come to an exhaustive end of 
but I think if you kick back and stop the inquiry and stop wondering, stop paying attention, stop asking, stop pondering, something stale happens. But not, not in a regenerative yeah. death, it just extinguishes. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I don't know. I, I'm not afraid of that. I, I guess people get afraid of that. Like, oh, but what if we're just constantly, you know, questioning the cosmos and the context of the context of the context of the context? And damn it, I just need to go to work on Monday. Like, I don't want to question all that stuff all the time. Um, I think f for my own part, I'm so energized by how fantastic it is. Um, I was going to say beautiful, but it, it, it's beautiful and also horrible. It's fantastic. And that perception of it being fantastic makes the world a different place. It's not a place to be figured out or sussed or mastered or to get the code for or to, you know, get to a plateau or just to get to the weekend or to, you know, I'm not trying to get anywhere or go anywhere or do anything. I'm just trying to be the best Nora I can in the middle of this fantastic chaos. Again, using those that mechanical linear language of getting somewhere and figuring it out and, and getting to this stop and that stop and three clicks on the on the meter. Yeah. What if there is no? Right? If you were a a butterfly living in a meadow, where where are you going? What are you getting? What what are you doing? Like what's the point? There's this great quote in one of my dad's books where there's this this dialogue, a father-daughter dialogue. And the daughter says, oh, this is just all too much. What's the point? And he responds and he says, if you're asking that question, it's because you've never fallen in love. And that's exactly what it's not all about, is the point. It's absolutely beautiful. And, um, and I love bringing it back to that word of love and, and connecting that to the generosity um, and, and those meanderings. Um, and as at first as well, we talked about being in the middle and we talked about um, just, just the relationships, you know, across all of these things and space and time and people and things. And I want to thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for, for your words. Um, I, I'm going to ask just one question. It, what are you, on your horizons in terms of what you are um, meandering in? I'm not going to say towards, but in, <laughs> where you find your space and um, and and some of the things that that are there that are that are that are present with you. Well, I. Um... I'm really enjoying the work with the warm data and I'm learning so much from this and from the other people who are learning with me and um, uh, 
about also what's possible and and seeing you know we we don't have time to teach complexity theory to eight billion people. Um, I don't think we need to. A lot of the people I know that actually are proficient in complexity theory seem to operate with quite a vocabulary of complexity theory, but it's not actually in their breakfast. It's not in there the way they are trying to get that crying child off the doormat and into school. Um, anybody, everybody that I have ever worked with has been able to perceive transcontextual process absolutely just fine. Any story from your life, any story is filled with multiple contexts coming through each other. So here we are in this world where we think, okay, this is education and this is economy and this is politics and this is culture and this is tech and this is media and this is this and this is that. And actually we are all of those things at the same time. So instead of there being this like giant whack-a-mole game of running around trying to solve all these different problems, the the warm data work shifts things at the level of the premises of approach. Uh, and I am so fascinated by that. It's so beautiful. So I'm excited um, to be playing with that and to, to uh, invite anybody who wants to play with me. So yeah, that's what I'm up to. And for the foreseeable future, I think that's what it's going to be. Because I my feeling is that anything that we can do that allows for a shift in the way that people are communing with each other, the way they see themselves and each other um, is going to offer possibilities for ways of living. I, you know, we can't do community until we can commune. And um, there's a reason we call it people need people. I, I honestly do not believe that our institutions can really be changed, but we are the people who are in them and we do we are learning we are and we need each other so it one of the most radical things i think we can do right now is to allow ourselves to be needed and to need each other and to begin to form a grammar and a vocabulary of that process of of being interdependent instead of independent. That's a tricky one. Do you have children? I do, yes, two, 16 and 12. How would you raise them differently if you knew that they were never leaving home? You don't have to answer it, but just to ponder that, because it, you know when you even look at our parenting programming, it's filled with the messages of you are going to individuate, you are going to move away. You are going to leave the nest. You are, I have to train you how to be a, a, a well-adjusted citizen before you go out. Like all of this information. But when you look at these intergenerational projects, oh my God, the entire program is different. 
because nobody's leaving. So how do we begin to hold that? So it's no, it's not worth it to punish your child to make them learn the lesson. If you put the lesson above the relationship, if humiliation is necessary to learn the lesson, how are you going to live in that humiliation repercussions? So I, I, I like that question of how would we raise our children differently if we knew they weren't leaving home? Because I think it kind of like smacks it in your face of like, listen, we are absolutely training each other not to need each other. It's weak. I heard somewhere years ago that the job of a parent is to parent themselves out of a job. That's that's exactly what you're you're warning us against. Yeah. What does that? I mean, how are we going to do community if we can't do intergenerational living? How are we going to be there for each other? If we can't even figure out who's going to do the dishes. If we're busy hating each other for something someone said 15 years ago. If we thought that we could humiliate each other into complicity. So there's a lot of parts of the world that do intergenerational living and that have worked on this for some time. And, um, and then there's other parts that are really at a loss. So uh, anyway, it's an interesting question and I think one worth pondering. How do we need each other and be needed? So that where we can actually not need those systems that are so destructive. Thank you, Nora. I really appreciate your time. You too. Thank you. This has been the Coconut Thinking Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We are on www.coconut-thinking.design and Intrepid Ed is www.intrepidednews.com. We look forward to your comments. Come back uh, soon, listen to some of the past episodes, leave us a rating, all that good stuff, and we will speak to you soon. Bye-bye.